Well, today I have the great privilege of examining Romans chapter 7 and what it has to tell us about the process of sanctification. But before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this day only by the authority of your Son. We ask that you would give us wisdom so that we may grow as faithful and loving Christians who bear your name well. Guide us and teach us through your word and empower us by your Holy Spirit to render praise and worship that is pleasing and glorifying to your name. Amen. Romans chapter 7. If you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn there. If you have your Bible or your phone. This chapter, Romans 7, has been regarded by many commentators as one of, if not the passage, the key passage regarding the process of sanctification in the life of a Christian. From as early as St. Augustine on through to Calvin and Luther and the Reformers, and indeed to this very day, Christians throughout history have read this chapter and recognized a keen similarity between Paul's words and their own experience as followers of Christ who are struggling against sin and at the same time desiring to be set free from the act of sinning. Now, as a qualifier, I have chosen the entire chapter for my text, which is certainly biting off more than I can chew. Uh, so rather than going verse by verse, which is your sort of classic expository way of preaching, I'm forced to go paragraph by paragraph or section by section. But nevertheless, I do believe that it's beneficial for us to look at the whole chapter in order to see its many elements and exactly how Paul is fitting those elements together. <clears throat> so as I've mentioned, this chapter is, of course, about sanctification. But what does that word mean? Or rather, more importantly, what does Paul mean when he uses that term, sanctification? Now, the Greek word he uses is hagiosmos, hagiosmos, which is the word for holiness. But more specifically, it's the type of holiness of personal dedication to the Lord or being set apart for God. So in this way, we can say things like, we are made holy as Christ is holy, and we grow in that holiness. When we grow in that holiness, we experience victory and deliverance from continual sin, from sinning. So to put it simply, sanctification is the process through which we are made into the image of Christ. The process of sanctification is also progressive. It's ongoing. And as we will see, for those who remain faithful to Christ, it is a lifelong journey. We as Christians must always be ready and alert to fight against our sinful habits and our sinful desires. Now, one very common criticism to this view of sanctification is to say, now, wait a minute. I thought Christ has defeated sin and death. And haven't we been filled with the Holy Spirit and been made a new creation? Yes. Amen. Indeed, the old is gone and the new has come. So then how can we say that we will continue to fight against sin? Well, to answer those very good questions, we must make a distinction between two terms. That is sanctification and justification. Now, we've already begun to define sanctification as being conformed to the image of Christ 
But how is that distinct and different from justification? The act of justification is our acquittal from the guilt and penalty of sin. Justification is our acquittal from the guilt and penalty of sin. We are justified before God the Father through the work of Christ. When Christ applies his atonement to our souls and brings us back into unity and covenant with the Father and the Spirit, we call that being justified. Therefore, the second death, or separation from God, which is the penalty of sin, no longer has hold over us. For the Lord's victory over sin and death, therefore, becomes our victory as well. So justification is our acquittal from the penalty of sin, whereas sanctification is our ongoing deliverance from sinning. Let me say that again. Justification is our acquittal from the penalty of sin, and sanctification is the ongoing deliverance from the act of sinning. At this point, it may seem a little strange or even perhaps contradictory to say that we have been completely freed from the penalty of sin, yet we are somehow not completely free from the act of sinning. But we must remember a very important fact about our condition. And that is, we are first sons of Adam. For we were and still are sons of the first Adam. We live in a world that is still under the curse of the fall. And even though we are in Christ, who is the second Adam, who is the new Adam, our flesh, our natural heritage, is from that of fallen man. So we suffer under the curse of the fall. We toil and labor by the sweat of our brows. Mothers experience severe pain and difficulty to deliver their children. And we experience the decay of our health and the decay of our bodies on a daily basis. We are keenly aware that our flesh, our physical bodies, are under the curse. And indeed, Scripture says that all creation groans under the curse. The point is that we are all very willing to accept that our physical bodies are still in Adam. And that this is what causes them to decay and die. We understand that though we are a new creation in Christ, having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we still suffer against the struggles of our flesh. Our reading this morning was from 1 Corinthians 15. And there, Paul explains this exact relationship. We have the tension between Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam and what our unity with Christ ultimately means for our flesh, for our physical bodies. So let me read again verses 20 through 22 and then 42 through 49. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then further down, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a spiritual body, there is also, excuse me, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So here, Paul is explaining that our flesh will not remain. But at the resurrection of the dead, we will put off our old bodies and be raised in our new resurrected bodies, just as Christ was. Now, I'm not going to speculate on the potential metaphysical makeup or constitution of those spiritual bodies, um, the spiritual bodies that we will receive. To that, I will happily defer to the imagination of C.S. Lewis uh, and his book, The Great Divorce. But we can know for certain that our physical bodies will match the state of our souls in Christ. We have been made new creations in our spirits first, through Christ, the second Adam, and we will receive our new flesh at the resurrection, when we will finally, as I said, put off the remnants of our heritage under the first Adam. So with this in mind, we can begin in Romans 7. Paul begins the, the first verse by giving an analogy as to how the Jew and actually the Gentile were under the Mosaic law before Christ. That is, before Christ, salvation was only attainable through the Mosaic law. He illustrates the process of conversion or the movement from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ through the imagery of marriage. So beginning at verse 1 down to verse 3. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The Jew and the unregenerate man is pictured here as the wife, the bride. Those who are married to the Mosaic law, they are bound to it. Thus Christ, who is pictured as the new husband, puts to death the requirements of the law. He puts to death, as it were, the old husband. Therefore, freeing the Jews, freeing unregenerate man, from their former husband, which enables them to what? To remarry. And then Christ becomes our new husband. By putting to death the first husband, Christ has not only freed us from the Mosaic law and its demands, but he has also freed us from our spiritual lineage in Adam. It was because of the sins of Adam that mankind was first separated from God. And so God gave Moses the law to give to Israel so that Israel could come back into covenant with God, as well as know how to obey him and to avoid sinning against him. But the Mosaic law, as Paul continues on, is in fact inadequate for producing obedience 
in man who are in Adam. So the law is inadequate for producing obedience in man who are under Adam. That is, obedience and righteousness that satisfies the righteousness and holiness of God. So we pick up at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our, spirit, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. So from verse 4 to verse 13, Paul laments the law's inability to produce disobedience in fallen man. He states that the law, which itself is good, only caused him to sin more. This is because the Mosaic law exposes the true depravity of man's sinfulness. And even though the Mosaic law tells us what sin is and how to be obedient to God, because we are still in Adam, we are incapable of fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. We cannot satisfy the requirements of the law. However, since Christ, who incidentally was not in Adam, his father was not Adam, his father was God. Since Christ is not in Adam, and he has kept the law and satisfied God the Father, our subsequent obedience is no longer demanded as it was under the law. We are now slaves and indebted to Christ, but he does not require the same kind of demands as the Mosaic law. This is what frees us to glorify God. When we were once obligated to be obedient, now we are free to be obedient. Thus our actions bring glory to God only through the righteousness of Christ. And in turn, our sins are not counted against us because they are covered by the blood of Christ. Yet even though we are justified in Christ, again, we still continue to struggle against sin. And this struggle is what Paul distinguishes as the law of the Spirit versus the law of the flesh. So picking up at verse 14, Paul explains the tension that the Christian is living in, this tension between Adam and the first Adam, the law of the spirit and the law of the flesh. For we know that the, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now these words of Paul are quite striking. And before we parse out exactly what the implication is, and how we can understand sanctification, I think it's beneficial that we should first look at two alternative views to the proper view of sanctification. You see, if we come at this passage with certain presuppositions or predispositions, we may find ourselves falling into one of two errors. And what's interesting is both of those errors share a a common foundation. They share a common philosophical framework. This common framework is known as dualism. Now, dualism, or the dualistic view of reality, essentially splits reality into two pieces. Those two pieces being the mind and the body, or the spirit and the flesh. So it may be tempting for us to read Romans 7 and start to believe that this is what Paul is saying. That somehow the body or the flesh, is inferior to the mind and that they are completely separate. There's a complete divide between the flesh and the spirit. Now, if we go that far, we run the risk of holding one of these two erroneous views and actually heretical views. The first view is a bit of a tongue twister. Antinomianism. Antinomianism, which comes from the term Nominist, which a nominist is someone who upholds the law. So an anti-nominist is someone who rejects the law. So, so in short, antinomianism posits that the Old Testament law is now void and done away with. Therefore, there is no longer any law over our physical bodies. We are governed solely and only by the Holy Spirit in our souls, in our minds. Since the Spirit has replaced the law, and the law was only concerned with external or physical adherence, the um, antinomists conclude that the spiritual realm then is all that matters and all that exists. This view was held as early as the second century by groups known as the Gnostics and then the Docetists. They held quite strictly that matter was evil and the spirit was good. And they claimed that salvation was attained only through esoteric knowledge, or what they called gnosis, head knowledge. Because of this dualistic view and the degradation of the physical, many of them ended up rejecting the incarnation of Christ. Christ, if he was indeed God, would have nothing to do with the utterly corrupt and degraded physical matter. Some of them even believed that the God of the Old Testament was not in fact God the Father, but must have been some lesser God. Because God the Father, the one true God, would never demean himself by creating physical matter. Well, you can see that these are pretty radical views. 
And before you dismiss these ideas as backwards, crackpot views of God and morality and say to yourself, well, I would never be so foolish to leave anything like that. Let me explain one of the results of antinomianism that may be a little more familiar than we would care to admit. Because of the split between the body and the mind, it also isolates morality, right and wrong, solely in the realm of the spiritual. As a result, what we do with our physical bodies doesn't matter. The only thing that is important is what we believe. If our mind and spirit hold right beliefs about God, then we're saved. So we are ultimately free to sin physically with impunity because that physical action doesn't actually exist. It's not actually sin. So we border on this view when we tell ourselves things like this. Well, I might have sinned, but at least I know what I did was wrong. Or, if we dull our spirit to the conviction of sin until we can go about our day without ever noticing sin in ourselves, yet, we are utterly convinced that because of our right theology alone is sufficient for salvation, then we are leaning towards antinomianism. But let me be clear, this is not what Paul is saying. He is not giving the Christian license to sin by teaching that the physical body is inferior, therefore it doesn't really matter what you do with it. Now the other side of the dualistic coin is what's known as legalism. Now legalism is probably a little more familiar with um, this crowd. We've probably heard of that term as Christians. We hear about legalism from time to time. Or we might even be accused of being legalistic. Rather than destroying the law like antinomianists did, legalism upholds it to the highest extent, to the point that the actions we carry out with our physical bodies are all that matter. Following in the philosophical footsteps of materialism, which says that the physical world is all that exists, legalism holds that the only thing that matters is our external adherence and our external obedience to the written law. And of course, according to legalists, materialists, the law must be physically written. For any internal law, any law that's written on our hearts, is illusory and unreliable. Legalism reduces reality to physical matter only. The spirit, or the mind, is just the result of physical processes. So what we believe, the doctrines we hold, are only as good as our actions. The result of legalism, when it's brought to its logical conclusion, is that it reduces the Holy Spirit to a mere phantom. And we are saved not by the impartation of God's grace through faith, but purely and only by our external behavior, our adherence to the law. The interesting thing is that this is actually quite close to the mindset of the first century Jewish leaders and Paul's original audience in Rome. They, being Jews, formerly Jews, bound to the written code, were determined to maintain a strict adherence to each letter of the law. While their minds and thoughts could be filled with sin, filled with murderous thoughts and lustful thoughts, they believed that only their outward actions, their outward behavior, what made them clean or unclean. And because of this fact, 
Christ's words at the Sermon on the Mount, that if anyone hates his brother in his heart, he is guilty of the sin of murder. And likewise, if you look at a woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart, were so earth-shattering to their system, their system of external adherence to the law. They said, what do you mean that the law is now binding on my spirit as well as my body? What do you mean that the law of God now penetrates into my soul? So these are the two opposite and erroneous views of sanctification and the law of God. You have antinomianism, which holds that there is no longer any law governing our external actions, and legalism, which states that our external physical adherence to the law is all that matters. So we can see that those are two polar opposites. Now, neither of these are the conclusion that Paul is driving at. Instead of a separation between the body and spirit, thus placing one over the other in a matter of importance and value, Paul is clearly stating that both are of equal value, yet, and this is the most important part, yet one of them has not yet been renewed. So Paul goes on to say this in the next chapter of Romans, in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So our physical bodies, though they are dead in Adam, and the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, will bring us life through his righteousness in our physical bodies. And that same Spirit, again, will give our dead bodies life as well. We will be raised in newness of life, just as Christ was raised. So with all this in mind, now we come to the final section of verse 7. Verses 21 through 25. Paul concludes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is quite eloquent of Paul's ability to lay out the ongoing struggle that the Christian faces while having, as it were, feet in two worlds simultaneously. Our souls and minds are renewed by Christ, and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, while our bodies still wrestle under the curse of our first father, Adam. This tension is evident throughout the New Testament, and it's one that we can surely testify to with our own experience. Now, if you know me, I'm not one to promote the idea of using your own personal experiences uh, as a proof for what Scripture means. That's certainly a dangerous method to use. But in this case, we are in good company. As I said before, from the second century, from the early Christian fathers, Christians have read this chapter and immediately felt a sharp similarity between their own experience with the struggle of sin and what Paul is saying here. To add another important note, 
regarding this process of sanctification, the presence of this tension that we feel is the only way in which we can be told to mortify our flesh. Because if there is no fight, if there's nothing to overcome or yet to be renewed, if the work is in fact completely done and our bodies are no longer in the first Adam, then why and how would we be commanded to beat our bodies into submission to the law of Christ? How and why would we be told to mortify, mortify the desires of the flesh? These statements in Scripture assume that there is a conflict that is ongoing. So in this way, we consider, we can consider, sanctification as a progressive endeavor. We as Christians should be able to look back at our lives and see the growth in our minds and in our bodies. We should be able to look back and see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and therefore see the sanctifying work of Christ in our bodies. That's the goal. That's what we should be able to see. Sanctification, therefore, is the image of Christ in us being worked out from the center outwards. It begins in our souls and it spreads out to our fingertips so that our actions, our behavior, our flesh, begins to mirror the state of our souls. Our actions begin to match what we know and desire to do. The great reformer Martin Luther, in his commentary on Romans, chapter 7, had this to say regarding verse 25. And he says, quote, in, verse, excuse me, in chapter 7, verse 25, the apostle writes, With my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. This is the clearest passage of all. And from it we learn that one and same believing person serves at the same time the law of God and the law of sin. He is at the same time justified and yet a sinner. That is, the whole man, one and the same person, is in this twofold servitude. For this reason, he thanks God that he serves the law of God, and he pleads for mercy for serving the law of sin. So according to Luther, justification before God does not then remove the Christian from the presence and influence of sinning any more than our justification frees us from the effects of, curse, of the curse of Adam on our physical bodies. Compared to those alternative views of sanctification that I talked about, Paul is in fact giving us a unique and distinct understanding of our condition as Christians. This position, rather than antinomianism or legalism, has been informally called the liberty of sanctification, or just Christian liberty. And that is the proper understanding of sanctification. That is, we have been set free or set at liberty in Christ to do good works. Now, there's an interesting feature about liberty or freedom in that it implies victory. It implies victory. For we can scarcely say that anyone has freedom if that person has been defeated. Ponder that for a moment. Can you think of an instance where someone has freedom and is yet living in a defeated state? It's difficult to do so. In this way, if we have freedom, then it implies that we also have victory. Christ, Christ gives us freedom from and victory over sin and sinning. So despite the fact that we are in our flesh, still in Adam, 
we are now capable, we are now free to be victorious over sinning. It is in this way that we are no longer bound by sin. And we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to no longer sin, to do good. By comparison, the unregenerate man cannot overcome sin. He is enslaved to sin in both his mind and his body. He is not free to do good. For us, the good news is that Christ has given us victory over sin and death. Yet, though the war is won, we have justification. Our struggle against sin is one that, will ne- that we will never stop fighting. Sanctification is not a finite process where we can get to a point in our lives where we have finally overcome our flesh, where we will no longer sin at all. Scripture is quite clear that while we live on this side of the resurrection, we will continue to struggle with sin. But the important fact is that we are free to fight that fight. A slave who's in chains and locked up in his sin is incapable of fighting against his captor. We have been freed from sin and death, so we are now able and free to engage in this holy warfare. We are now free to do good and to glorify God. So this is the last feature of this chapter that I would like to touch on. That is the relationship between the sanctified Christian who has been set at liberty from the requirements of the law and the atoning work of Christ. Christ, having made full atonement for the debt that we owed to God, has satisfied the requirements of the law. After all, the law was to show Israel and mankind the degree of their debt to God. The Mosaic law, as Paul expresses, shows man just how sinful he is and what the requirements were to satisfy the righteousness of God, to satisfy the wrath of God. Since Christ has now satisfied the righteous requirements of God, are we then still required to render unto God that which he required of us under the law. You can ask that again. Since Christ has now satisfied the requirements of God, are we then still required to render unto God that which he required of us under the law? We'd say, of course not. Why then are we commanded to obey Christ and his commands, his law? How are we to accomplish this without falling right back into a type of legalism. Well, let me ask you a question to illustrate this. How do we show love and honor and respect to someone? How do we show love and honor to our family and friends? Well, we do good to them. We do good. Now, do we do good to them out of a sense of obligation? No, we don't do good to them out of a sense of obligation. We do good to them because we love them. We want to honor them. It's a free and willing expression. When we give someone a gift, the example of gift giving, if we give someone a gift, it is expected that it is given out of love and honor and respect for that person. If it wasn't, it's probably not a gift. Think about the fact, the act of gift giving in its most basic form. When you give someone a gift, you are, in varying degrees, loving them. You are honoring them. And it would cease to be a gift if it was not done in that manner. 
if it was not freely given. Now consider this scenario, and some of you have perhaps been on either side of this scenario. When you're indebted to someone, or you owe someone something, whether that's money or their lawnmower back or whatever it is, can you give them a gift if you are still indebted to them? Is it possible for you to show them that type of love, honor, and respect while you are still indebted to them? If you are still indebted to someone like that and you try to give them a gift, their natural response is to ask, well, is this supposed to be partial payment? Is this supposed to go towards the debt that you owe me? Can you freely give a gift then if you are still in debt? I would say no. The debt can ruin the gift and, in fact, actually ruin the relationship. That's what makes gift-giving a loving and honoring action because it's freely and willingly done. Herein lies what Christ has secured for us. He owed God the Father nothing. He had incurred no debt, but he paid our debt, the debt we incurred, fully. So now we, like Christ, are free We are at liberty to render unto God good deeds. Those deeds are no longer required under the law. For if they were still required under the law, as they were, then Christ would not have satisfied the Father. This is why Christ is able and faithful to forgive our sins. When we confess our sins, he is not then re-crucified or sent back to the cross to atone for yet another batch of sins. His work on the cross is sufficient. He has paid our debt fully. The work is finished. Therefore, we are called to obey Christ and the commands of Christ, not out of external adherence and obligation only, but out of love and honor for him who has rescued us. Then we can see why Paul begins this section with the analogy of marriage. There is no greater human relationship that is able to express what true love and willing obedience looks like other than the covenant of marriage. The love between a husband and wife is not one of blind, dispassionate obedience. Rather, when you love your spouse, you truly do desire to honor them. You truly do desire to do good to them. You desire to see them built up and praised. This is what it means, then, to be conformed in the image of Christ. We grow in sanctification when we are motivated in the same way that Christ was. That is, out of love and honor for the triune God. Christ bore the wrath of God and the penalty of our sins because he loved the Father. How do we know that we are progressing in sanctification? How do we know that we are indeed being conformed in the image of Christ? We can know we are being sanctified when we are motivated out of love for God and a desire to honor and glorify him. If you are only interested in the outward appearance of your righteousness, then you're not being sanctified. If you think that our if you think that your obedience to the law somehow gets you a little more eternal security or gains you a little more assurance, then you actually belittle the work of Christ. If we take our liberty for granted, then we run the risk of dismissing our sins as no longer having any consequence at all. When we do this, we also belittle the work of Christ by disregarding the severity and penalty of our sin. 
And to go on and sin with impunity so that grace may abound is not only putting God to the, to the test, but it's also trampling on the sacrifice of Christ. So it is out of love by which we ought to be motivated to obey Christ. It is out of love for the triune God that we ought to exercise self-control. It's for the love that Christ shows us that while we were still his enemies, he saved us. So now we are free to love him in return. And how do you show someone that you love and honor them? Again, you do good to them. You speak well of them. You praise them and desire to please them. So in this way, we grow in the image of Christ. In this way, we grow in sanctification when we are motivated out of love and honor and honor for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace are new every morning. Thank you for the freedom that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for the life that you have provided for us. We ask that you would bless us this day, work in us, lead us and guide us through your word, and empower us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.